If you would please take out your copies of God's Word with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We've been working our way through this Gospel of Matthew during this Advent season. And before us is a rather challenging piece of Scripture. It's a bit of the Christmas story that doesn't often make it into the children's storybook Bibles or the sections that we read around the tree because this is a hard passage to look at. And I must say, this hits me very differently now as a parent of a child. But this passage has a lot of hope for us, even as horrific as it looks, and gives to us, maybe those of us that have been suffering a lot during this Christmas season, a reason to hope. So with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that is, the wise men that had come to visit Jesus, bringing him gifts, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that, but when he heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to God and ask his blessing on our text and sermon today. Oh, Holy Spirit, we come to this word. This is a challenging word. And I pray that you would help to open our eyes to see the truth that's in it, that we would be comforted by the hard truths that it confronts, and that we would love and trust you all the more because of it. Help me to preach this well, and it's in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Why does the world have to be this way? This is probably a question that we ask about our world, and perhaps we ask it with a little bit of nostalgia for how things used to be. We remember a time in which it seemed like the world was just more at peace, when we could be less afraid to walk down our streets in our neighborhoods or be out at night. 
or at least be unaware more about how of all these things that are happening. Life was easier pre-internet when we could be download all the horrific stories from all over the world, inundate us all day, every day. And we can tend to think that the world is as bad as it's ever been, perhaps worse than it's ever been, and assume that maybe since Christ was born so long ago that he doesn't have anything to say to us today. The world's just grown so dark. What is it that Jesus can do? Well, far from an idyllic countryside, Jesus was born into just as dark of a world as ours. We can see this here in this passage, that on the streets of Jesus' birth were the footsteps of soldiers carrying out atrocities that have been surpassed in our own age. But nonetheless, Jesus understands this is the dark world that he came into and a dark world that he has given hope to. You see, the reason why Jesus has come is because when he died and rose again, showing us that he can make life after death, he puts all of these atrocities in new light. All of a sudden, corrupt rulers, the death of children, disease, famine, all of those things get put into a new context where corrupt rulers don't have the last word. Sickness doesn't have the last word. Even death doesn't have the last word. And that's what we're going to see today. We will look at our usual two points that you can see in your outline on the back of the prayer guide in the bulletin. We're going to see that Jesus came into a dark world to save sinners, a very dark world, but to save very dark sinners. And the second point is that the world's attempt at stopping Jesus only advances his mission. The world's attempt at stopping Jesus only advance his mission. So let's see how we find all of that in this passage of Scripture today. We pick up in verse 13. The wise men who have just journeyed from the east, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts for a king to this child, they've just now left. Now, as you remember from last week, Herod had enlisted these wise men to go find this child for him, the child that was to be called king of the Jews, because he was already the king of the Jews. Herod was, and he didn't like any challenges to his throne. He wanted to find this child so that he could eliminate this child. But, of course, God and his providence, as we've been seeing throughout this story, intervenes and sends the wise men back another way. But the danger is still ever-present. Herod's palace, according to scholars, was about four miles away from Bethlehem. You could actually see Herod's palace very likely from Jesus' front porch. So it would not take very long for Herod to realize the wise men weren't coming back. And it would take even less time for him to dispatch soldiers to go into this area. So he warns Joseph to get up and to leave. And he leaves that very night. That's a tremendous act of disobedience, of, 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 of obedience, by the way. To get up in the middle of the night and immigrate to a new country. I feel like I've suffered when I had to get up to change the diaper of my son in the middle of the night. Here he's moving house, moving country, leaving everything behind. There's no time for a job interview. There's no time to find new housing. It's just up and off to Egypt. And it's relying on God to provide for him all of this way. 
There was a sizable Jewish population that lived in Egypt. It was kind of a place for refuge at the time. My, how times have changed by that point. But God is providing for them. And I hadn't noticed this before studying the passage this week. But they were able to do all of this because of the gifts that had just been given to them. How do you pack up, move house, buy somewhere else, and sustain yourself till you get a new job? Well, what if a bunch of wise men come by and drop off a bunch of gold and tradable goods for you? God gave them a relocation bonus, keeping them provided for all the way through the providence of God as he guides them along. So he goes to Egypt, and then it says the reason why in verse 15 This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And it's kind of difficult to see exactly how this was a messianic prophecy. Because that chapter is talking about Israel. Literally Israel. So what is Matthew getting at here? Uh, In the research for what scholars were, were saying about this passage, and I think this is correct that Matthew is noticing a theme. He is noticing that Jesus is acting like Israel and is going through what the nation of Israel went through. Israel went down to Egypt when they were just a little family to avoid famine, avoiding an existential crisis, something that might kill them, brought them to Egypt. And it was taken back out of Egypt to settle back in their land. You see, Israel was supposed to form and fill a very definite function. We can find that, and I'll just read it for you. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, this was supposed to be Israel's job description. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This was their point, was to be priests. What do priests do? They point you to God. They're supposed to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world as to where they could find the true God of all the world. But they didn't. Despite their privileged position, despite being called a son of God, one who would be receiving his unique protection, his unique pleasure. They rebelled against him all through their history. And now Jesus is supposed to represent Israel and fulfill the mission that they were supposed to, point people to God. He was the true son of God in the the deepest of all possible meanings. So here he is fulfilling This word from the prophet is fulfilling what Israel should have been in pointing people to God. This is what he does. And here he is reliving the experiences of Israel in going down into Egypt and being called out of it. So here this is God providing. Even in the midst of this dark world, he is providing a savior, protecting this savior and bringing him back. But as we look into this next section, here starting in verse 16, we see how God's providence works in the dark. 
in times where it seems like there is no silver lining. Let's find out how he does this. Herod, of course, is frustrated because the wise men haven't done what he's asked them to do. So he is going to protect his throne at all costs. And what follows in this atrocity is very much like Herod. This fits his character. This particular incident is not mentioned outside of the record of the Bible. And this is probably because of all the heinous things that he did. This would, believe it or not, be considered one of the smaller ones. This would have been a smaller demographic of people in a small town, so most historians probably wouldn't have thought to mention it. He was the kind of person that killed his own wife and son because he later falsely believed that they had conspired against him. In fact, he had, on, as he was approaching the day of his death, he had ordered that the day he died that he would kill 3,000 Jewish leaders so to guarantee that there would be mourning on the day in which he died. Thankfully, that was not carried out. And in fact, those 3,000 leaders were freed and given a promotion. So there was great rejoicing on the day that Herod died. So it shows who's really in charge here. So this slaughtering of children to keep his throne, not something that would be outside his character. So this would be something that we could see him doing. But this brings a challenge to us. And it's an old challenge. It's an old question. Why? God clearly knows Herod's about to do this, as he warns Joseph in a dream beforehand, the night before. Why didn't he warn the other parents? Why does he allow this sort of thing to happen? There's a couple of different choices we could make. We could say, okay, well, maybe God's not as good as we think he is. Maybe he's just as evil as anybody else, and he does this. No, that's not the case at all. Look at James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings forth fruit, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Then it continues, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God brings the good things. There's no change in that. He doesn't commit sin. He did not put into Herod's heart heart, the desire to murder. That's against God's nature, just like it's against my nature to fly unassisted, something I cannot do. God cannot sin. So then this leads then to the next question. It's like, okay, well, if God's not the one who is causing this sin, he's not the author of sin, then is God just unable To stop? Is he out of control in this world? The answer is no again. And for that, we can turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, we're telling the story of another Joseph, who was one of 12 brothers, who was sold into slavery and lived 
as a slave for many years, falsely imprisoned, going through all sorts of things for a long, long time before he was finally promoted to be second in command of Egypt and save the world from famine. But look how he interprets all of these things that happened to his life. He's talking now to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we have now two things that are true. God is not the author of sin, but God is not out of control. How do we hold these two things together? This is where Jesus comes in. This horrible atrocity is done in the context of Jesus being delivered, of Jesus entering into this world. In fact, I think this is why this passage in Jeremiah is quoted. The passage where this is, which is Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is the only sad verse in that whole chapter of Jeremiah. It's talking about when Israel was exiled from their own land, being carried off into captivity. And we have this verse mourning that fact. But the rest of the chapter is about how God is going to deliver his people from that captivity and bring them back into this land. And that's how we need to look at this passage here. This is a very difficult thing. This is hard. What Herod did was wrong. But God is doing this in a context that's going to give brand new hope. You see, without Christ, this is just another loss of life, and that's it. That's the end. But when you have Jesus rise from the dead... Jesus is able to say, this is not the end. This is not the final word. Death can separate you for a while, but it doesn't separate permanently. There is hope of resurrection. There is hope of redemption. This is what Jesus is saying, and that's how we're able to get into our second point, that the world's attempts at stopping Jesus only advance his mission. If we read on in this story, we'll find out that, yes, Jesus' life was spared here. But in another 24 chapters or so, we're going to find that Jesus has killed himself. God the Father goes through the same thing that all of these fathers and mothers went through here in Bethlehem. Sacrificing of his son. And we would think, as horrible as this passage is, there was a yet greater atrocity that was yet to be committed. Rome would eventually crucify the Lord of glory, the one who was sent to save his people, the one who was sent to tell the world that he would be the one to cancel sin, free us from the wrath of God, and lead us into an eternal kingdom. And then he dies. You could imagine in those days following that, the the disciples' heaviness of heart. Here was their big hope, waiting for thousands of years. Now he's dead. You can imagine the world going, ha, see? We have the power of death. Everything is stopped by death. And we wield it. And then Jesus goes, 
I am the resurrection. Jesus goes, I am the life and rises from the dead. The greatest power that the world has is gone. What else can the world throw at us at this point? You have a corrupt government that can threaten to take your life. So, it's not the end. And in fact, this atrocity that the world has tried to commit against Jesus was exactly how that was accomplished. Jesus had to die in order to pay for the sins of the world, for our sins, because that was what we had earned for them. And so even in taking the horrible thing of the cross of Christ, God pulled out of that the greatest of possible redemptions. So what about this? What about these children? I hear a lot of times that the Lord does all things for a reason. And that's true as far as it goes. But I was reading an article this week that has given me an issue with how that's phrased. God doesn't do anything for a reason. He does things for every reason. This article talked about it had turned the omni-rationality of God throw you your one fancy word from a sermon today. Omni meaning all and rationality meaning reason. When we make something, we make decisions about how this thing's going to be constructed. But a lot of times we make errors in how we build these things to have unintended consequences. Growing up, we had a kitchen table uh, in our house that the person who had crafted it left these really sharp corners right where you have to put your leg to in order to get underneath that table. And we had learned to avoid it after a while, but our wonderful carpenter, whose name was Fred, I believe, every time we would misjudge that distance and bang our knee on the corner of this table, we would take Fred's name in vain. Fred could not anticipate how this was going to be done because he's limited. But when God makes a decision, he sees every single effect that that has. As I've said before, God is doing at any one point in your life about 10,000 things, and you are maybe aware of three of them. When you were called to move from your house to another place, you might say, oh, well, the reason why I moved here was so that I could be here with my parents in their older age. Yes, Along with that time when you drove to the store and smiled at someone, you didn't even realize that person was really, really low and saved their life. Or that time when you had a joyous meal with your new friends that you had made. Or that person that you were able to lead to Christ. Or that person that you had cut off in traffic and saved them from an accident because they were delayed. And all these billions of decisions that occur in your life. Now do that with every decision of every person in all the planet at all time. And now you get an idea of what God's doing. So when we look at something like this and say, why? I don't understand. Of course you don't understand. Because God's doing about a billion things. Now this doesn't mean it's easy. Or that weeping is wrong. I came across something on social media this week that said that Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and knew every reason why Lazarus had died and still wept. Emotions are not faithlessness. It can be difficult. No, we don't understand. Why? But we understand who. 
We understand the person that came here into this dark world to save people like us. He didn't have to live like this. He didn't have to leave his father's throne and be a little baby. having to be carried around for all these years. All of this is something that God is doing. As we see, even here, again, real quick, in 19 through 23, God continues to work and is moving in all of these things. I do like how it's mentioned twice that Herod died, along with all these other things. And this was likely shortly thereafter, after doing and committing this atrocity, he had died. I will spare you the details of exactly how, but trust me, it was a horrendous death. Well-deserved. And then his son ends up ruling over Bethlehem, who one commentator described that he had all of the same character flaws as his father, but none of the administrative skills. So he avoids going back to Bethlehem and instead ends up in Nazareth, once again fulfilling another statement from the prophets that he would be, he would be called a Nazarene. God is not out of control of this world. As much as it seems like everything is flying apart, it's not. God is working. And this passage, as we see, is one piece of how ultimately God would go about to redeem us all from our sin. To carry us to heaven. So what do we take away from all of this? How do we react? Well, it's one thing. To say that God is in control of our world. And it's another thing to really believe it. It's one thing to trust in God. And to really live like that's possible. What do I mean by that? Are you more comfortable. When you see the news going the way that you would like it to. When we see those cases of COVID. Those charts we've all become so familiar with. Are we more comfortable when it's on the downswing and less comfortable when it's on its way back up? Are we more comfortable when our guy is in the office versus when our guy is not? Are we more comfortable when our bank account is at this level or that level? Where do you draw your strength? Not saying we don't be careful when cases are high. Not saying we don't vote not saying we don't take measures to provide for ourselves in the future. But when is your soul at rest? Is it at rest when you think about Christ? And when you think about that he is the one that is controlling all of these elements of your life? Or is it when you can see it? I think this is where that draws to. Joseph clearly trusted God. Get up in the middle of the night and head to a new country. You'll figure it out when you get there. I want that kind of trust. I want that belief in Christ. To know that wherever he takes me, I'll go. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about trusting in God. And seeing all the miracles that Jesus had done. It's one thing to think and say theoretically. That Jesus is in charge. Just like it's one thing to say theoretically, a parachute will save you jumping out of an airplane. 
You might even be able to describe exactly why the parachute works, how it works, each string. But until you strap on the parachute and jump out of the plane, you only then do you demonstrate your trust. It's the same thing with Christ. We can say all we want that we trust him. But will you obey him? When Christ tells you to risk your reputation, as I think will, that will become more and more of a calculus in our country, to risk your reputation to tell your neighbors and your friends about Christ, an increasingly unaccepted message, will you go? If Christ calls you to move to a different place, to take the gospel to a people who have not heard, will you go? It's going to look different. Each one of us will have a different calling in our life. Mine looks like this. Yours might be something else. But when he does call you, when you get that midnight awakening and says, go, will you? You have a Savior who loves you very deeply who's been willing to come into a very, very dark world to set you free. He loves you a lot. And no, we don't understand why he does all that he does. We don't have to. Because we know who it is. We don't ask the surgeon to provide us updates during the surgery. We trust him. We need to trust Christ as well. So I pray that as you go through this season, And as we alternate between Christmas carols and dooming cable news, that you would be reminded of the reality of what we're celebrating. The news doesn't have its final word. Politics doesn't have the final word. No matter what we go through in our lives, there is an end point to that suffering. And if you've repented and put your faith in Christ. None of those things have the final word over your life specifically. But that one day you will see the end of sin, the end of death, and awaken to an everlasting hope. Oh, bring that day quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your coming into this world, this dark, dark world, and bring us hope. We thank you that you have provided for our sins to be forgiven. We can trust in you and live forever. I pray that as you came this first time, we pray that you would soon come again and that we would be able to see you work and redeem our world, remake our world just as you've promised. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.